Welcome to our Holden Village podcast. For over 50 years now, Holden Village has traveled a rich history of faith that has transformed a copper mining town into a vibrant place of education, programming, and worship. Holden has sought to welcome all who seek contemplation and community in the remote wilderness of the beautiful Cascade Mountains. We continue to invite people of all ages to come alongside our rhythms, which inspire and equip travelers for a sustainable life of faith outside the village. And we continue to listen and reflect on our story and history and seek to discover our place in God's creative mission in our world. Our podcasts are a way of sharing our conversations with our teaching faculty around reformation, the reforming of our relationships with the earth, with each other, and with the divine. Let's tune in and join the conversation. I'm Cecilia Porter. I'm from Sydney, BC, Canada. That's near Victoria on Vancouver Island. I have a undergraduate degree from the University of Victoria in anthropology and a master's degree from the University of Calgary in archaeology. I have worked on coastal BC with the indigenous people there for several years, and I've worked in the Canadian Arctic with the Inuit as well. I'm here in my capacity as anthropologist and archaeologist. All of my sessions really come together with understanding the context of being here in North America, that it's bigger than just our history. Um, and then if we can understand the, the huge time depth and the wider cultural history as our context, um, we can hopefully move forward in a better way. Holden's attempting to be a powerful cultural influencer in the direction of respect and loving and understanding and moving forward in harmony. When the call for proposals went out and they wanted people to talk about themes of bridging gaps between peoples and reconciliation and reformation, I went, archaeology does that. We really are, especially in Canada right now, in a time of very intense reconciliation with the Indigenous peoples of Canada, a lot of whom never ceded their territory. And the in light of this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Canada is kind of nationally doing this Truth and Reconciliation Commission thing with these uh, mandates that the commission came up with um, that have been adopted by the federal government to put into place, which include things like school curriculum about the colonialist history. Because when people understand the first step towards everyone getting along and living together, I mean, in some other colonialist cases in the world, the colonizers have, in a lot of ways, packed up and gone home, um, like Greenland. The Danish still has an influence in Greenland, but Greenland is under self-government now, and the Danish have largely packed up and gone home. But we're not doing that in North America. We live here. It's our home, too. And so how are we all going to get along? And how are we going to reconcile with the past and the colonialism that's gone on? And Canada's really in the midst of this right now. The U.S. is not. Wouldn't it be great? for me to share what's going on in Canada and with groups of Holden people who want kind of that called equipped and sent. We can have these discussions here and then people can go back into their communities and think about reconciliation and colonialist histories and what that means in their community. So I'm doing three different sessions. The first is on overcoming remoteness and kind of bridging these cultural and language and generational gaps that happen so that to promote knowledge and understanding. Because once people understand, know about something and understand it, then they can respect it. And then that has all kinds of knock-on effects for, for policy and, and for 
really dismantling some of this kind of ingrained in the institutions racism that happens. And so for my master's research, I worked in the Canadian Arctic with a small town called Arviat. They have a heritage site there. It's an Inuit heritage site. Almost everybody in Arviat is Inuit. Their first language is Inuktitut. They only spoke English for my benefit. <laughs> they have successfully lobbied the Canadian federal government to have this site, this heritage site, recognized as a national historic site, which means that it's significant to the story of Canada. And the Inuit heritage is significant to the story of Canada. Okay, that's great, but it's super remote. So how do you have a well-conceived outreach program for this? How do you have people experience the site to know why it's significant when it's so far in the north? And so I worked with the community and the elders to build a panoramic virtual tour of the National Historic Site with videos of the elders speaking and icons you can click on that tell you about the heritage that's tied to this landscape of this island that makes up this site. The elders' secondary goal was that they wanted an engaging way to impart their heritage to their youth. So I'm going to talk about that research there and, and the process that went into doing community collaborative research and then the goals of reaching out and education across these different, across geography, across cultures to promote knowledge and understanding. And then my second session is on the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that's gone across Canada, interviewed uh, residential school survivors all across Canada, compiled their testimonies, and made a list of recommendations that the Canadian federal government has said that they will fulfill. And these include things like apology, because it's the churches that ran these schools. So these include things like official apologies from the churches that ran the schools, education curriculum, so that people understand the history of what happened, the trauma that these people experienced, so that people can then understand this multi-generational trauma that these people aren't just broken. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, in their final report, came to the conclusion that it was intentional cultural genocide, which are pretty heavy words. You kind of read that and you go, oh, them's fighting words, you know? And then you read the commission and everything that happened, you go, actually, they're mm -hmm. right. What I'm really hoping to do is talk about what residential schools were in the U.S. and Canada. It was really the same. What happened there, what the lasting effects of this have been in terms of trauma. But then, really, I want to have a conversation. I don't want this to be a presentation entirely. I want it to be a conversation about what are actions that we can take in communities towards reconciliation. Things as small as... Like, in your home or your community or your church, whose territory are you on? Are you under a treaty? Was that land even ceded? Signed off in a treaty, there, there's an agreement about whose land is whose. In Victoria, um, Victoria is on unceded land. So the University of Victoria, for instance, um, is on unceded Coast Salish land, which means that the Coast Salish never signed away their title to this property, to all of Victoria. Okay, what are we going to do with that going forward? But at least we should know about it so that we can... Like, if we don't know about it, we can't work on it. In Calgary, where I went to do my grad studies, they're under Treaty 7. So there is a treaty in place. And the tenets of this treaty are really kind of important to know about because they really map out why things are the way they are, why the dynamics are the way they are, and where people's land are, and understanding the ways in which these treaties were signed. Some of them were signed quite straightforward. People were well informed about what they were signing. And in some places, the treaty 
people came in speaking English and the indigenous people did not, and they didn't understand what they were signing. And so understanding what has gone on in with the land you're on is a starting point to starting that conversation towards reconciling the past with going forward. So then my third session, we're going to do a walk out to Winston Camp, and it's not actually about the archaeology of Winston Camp, um, but I'm using it as a convenient location. Because in Winston Camp, we can see... It's an it's a exercise in seeing the landscape. In Winston Camp, there are some really obvious concrete foundations. In archaeology, we learn to see the landscape in a way that tells us that people have been there, even when there aren't these concrete foundations. Nothing in nature is ever a straight line. Terraced benches of land, they'll tell you things about what the landscape was doing and, and whether or not people were there. Types of vegetation changes will tell you as well. Patterns of even moisture and dryness will tell you that there might be something buried underneath. And so we're going to go traipse out to Winston Camp and, and look for these kinds of things really as a platform for a discussion on the idea that we get told about pristine, untouched wilderness. That often, 500 years ago, there was 10,000 people living there, and it really is not pristine, untouched wilderness at all. And it that there were indigenous people living there for 10,000 years. And so understanding that really starts to destabilize that narrative of like history starts at Columbus. When I was in school, um, in high school, we learned about the voyageurs and the fur traders um, and the explorers, but we didn't really learn about who came before then. I've worked on projects now that we found 13,000 year old footprints on the central coast. There've been people here a lot longer than fur traders. That really starts to make us understand how long human history is in North America and how significant those cultures were, not just hunter-gatherers, really established cultures. And that can help to have people understand the significance. I've always felt that on the coast, people built huge structures, but they're out of wood, and so we, we don't have them anymore. They built these huge longhouses, these massive welcome figures. And I felt like, you know, maybe if they built them out of... If, if, if the material available had been stone, then when the explorers came, people might have been more Edo and awe, but because they're not there anymore, because they're made of wood, it's more easily dismissed. And so then seeing the landscape and seeing where these, say, house depressions are that indicate these huge, big longhouses can start to bring around that realization of, of how recent our history is on this continent. If people don't know about things and they can't respect them, if they don't respect them, then we're more likely to fall down that trap of racism. It's actually a really powerful thing to just attempt to understand. And then from there you get such big things as policy changes. Thanks for joining us for another Holden Village podcast. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.